0: Erin Nisley has been with the Scranton Times-Tribune since 2006. She started as a reporter and was promoted to assistant Metro editor in 2012. She took over the local history column in 2013. Welcome to News Engine, Erin.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm excited about this one because you write a local history column that appears in the Sunday Times uh, just about every week. And oftentimes you'll write a column and family and friends of the people you write about see their loved ones in the column usually decades after the story first appeared in our publications. And that kind of happened to me. You wrote a story about how Scranton firefighters discovered the jeweled crown from the statue of the Blessed Virgin about a week after the horrific uh, Marywood fire. If For those of you who don't remember, back in February of 1971, the mother house at Marywood just literally caught on fire and burned to the ground. I mean, it was it was. Just an absolute mess of a fire. Firefighters arrived to find that several nuns had jumped from the building. I mean, it was a complete disaster. So you're writing this, and you see that one of the firefighters' name was Stephen Pekulski. And you reach out to me and said, hey, I think I'm doing a column about somebody you might be related
1: to. Well, I remember, like, in the deep recesses of my brain thinking, I think Ed's dad was a firefighter. And Pekulski's not a super common name. So I was like, you know, is this your dad or your uncle? and and you were really surprised that we had kind of dug this out of out of the archives.
0: Yeah, it was it was kind of a family, I don't know, legend so to speak because of some of the, you know, exploits of you know, my dad as a firefighter, but the Marywood fire was something that we all knew about for a bunch of reasons. And one that it was interesting because one when, when you wrote about it, it kind of forced us to go back into our memories and and talk about it and and maybe clean up some of our memories and, right. and figure out the way it, it, right. it all kind of uh, played out. Uh, before we get into that and my connection to it, tell us a little bit about the fire. I mean, it was a massive fire, right? So
1: this fire in 1971, it, it really kind of revamped how Marywood looked. Um, it actually started because um, they were waxing maybe a floor or something and they put this oil or wax-soaked rag onto a radiator, a near radiator, and it just it, it just burst into flames. Middle of the night, uh, people are, you know, jumping out windows, and um, your dad, and then I think it was a Lieutenant Robert Wintermantle, who I think also probably has family still in this area, go running in, and it's like backdraft. Um, there's a fireball that goes through the hallway and just, you know, pow, there they are, and they actually went to the hospital. So it was really a very dramatic fire that really changed the way Marywood looked. You know, we wrote about this in in 1971. I'm always looking for kind of something new or different. And so I was looking through these clips and saw that they had um, saved this crown that they had on, on the Virgin Mary. And it was full of jewels that when the nuns went into the convent, actually donated their jewels and had this made. At so the, Tiffany, at Tiffany
0: in New York, right?
1: Correct. And then put this as as something to kind of you know honor the the Virgin Mary and and, and their service. And it was dragged out of this blackened soot um, days after the fire. So um, I don't really know that a lot of people remember that little aspect of it. And so that's what I always look for when I'm writing about a thing in history that probably people remember. And seventy one wasn't that long ago. And I write about things that happened in the 1800s, you know, the early 1900s. So finding this little tiny fact within uh, an old clipping was a way that I could kind of like bring a new life to this old story. I don't know where it is now. Uh, we don't really know uh, where that is. If it's, you know, even still in Marywood's possession, we have no idea. But it was just such an interesting thing that these nuns had these jewels, first of all, that they were at least well off enough to be able to donate something like that. And that they, you know, nuns are not allowed to have property, but that they didn't give it to a family member, but they actually gave it to the convent, uh, which I find fascinating. And to have something that beautiful, you know, on Marywood campus, you don't really think about... Where these things come from in the chapels and the the altars and that type.
0: So, I you know, I wish my dad were still around because I, I would love to ask him if he remembered that they were able to find the crown, uh, which they weren't looking for, by the way. Right. They just kind of tripped over it in the rubble.
1: Right. They were just cleaning up, you know, from the, the fire um, and, and they just kind of lifted this out of, you know, the, the blackened mess, waterlogged mess. So
0: when when you're you're doing this story and you reach out to me about my dad, uh, I I told you, you know, some of the some of the background of it. And and we both kind of got a kick out of it because these are like one of the behind the scenes things. And we're going to get to more of these uh, later. So just like some of the other families have reached out to you after you run your local history columns. Mm-hmm. You and I spoke and I told you a couple of tidbits uh, that uh, you didn't know about. Um, right. One was the fire occurred on the night of my youngest sister's first birthday. Wow. So we had our birthday party and after the birthday party cleaned up, everybody went to bed. My dad was actually home And not on duty because he was recovering from an injury from a previous fire. (laughs) Of course he was. But the Marywood fire was so bad, they called everyone in. It didn't matter. Right. You had to go. So my dad goes off to this fire. The Gallagher women who lived right next door to my house, we always call them the the Gallagher ladies, uh, lived next door. They were these two older sisters who went to bed at 8 o'clock at night and woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Somehow they became aware of the fact that my dad had been hurt pretty bad in this fire. So they called my mom. That's how my mom found out my dad (laughs) was in the hospital. The the Gallagher ladies called and said, we're we're so sorry to hear about your husband. Oh, my gosh. My my mom has no idea. No one had called her. So a few hours after that, uh, she's trying to call the hospital. She can't get any information. My dad calls from the hospital and says... You know, hey, honey, I got a little banged up at the fire. I'll be home in a couple of hours, which was the furthest thing from the truth. He, right. he had burns. He was, yes. you know, he, his face was burned. His head was burned. Uh, he has, as you mentioned, been blown out a four story window, landed yeah. on an awning. Yeah. So that was, it was fun talking to you about that. But it's not unique to us because so many other people that you've written stories about have had similar experiences. And and one that I, I'd love to talk about is uh, the boys who got lost in the diamond mine back in May. May of 1934. Walter Gillis Savage and John Stasco Jr. were supposed to go to a baseball game after they left school, but
1: they didn't go to the game, did they? No. <laughs> the game, I guess, the, the field was moved and they decided, you know, we're not walking there. And they knew about the small opening in the Diamond Mine, which was um, off of Ravine Street. It was owned by Glen Alden Coal Company and um, Bootleg Miners, had created a small opening so these were people that would go down and, and get some coal and maybe use it for themselves or sell it so they went down there and um they were there for 75 hours
0: 75 hours yeah. you know as a kid growing up in scranton we played a lot in and around the old coal mines and the old mine land and we were every kid in scranton was told not to do it we all did it anyway this story really could have happened to
1: any one of us Right. And a miracle they were even found. So what, what happened was they, you know, slipped into the mine. So they didn't have any um, flashlights. They didn't have any food or water. Uh, you know, they probably didn't really think this through. And they did have a pack of matches, but the pack of matches wouldn't light because it was so damp and they, they eventually ran out of matches. And they just could not find their way back to the, the, the little opening. Um, so they're just wandering through these old tunnels. So the days family days. the
0: family reports this to the police and the police start kind of looking around, but they don't really know where to look.
1: Right, right. Actually, the dad started looking at, um, you know, rivers and streams and lakes because um, the one kid was, was, he loved fish, he loved to swim. They really thought that maybe these kids had, had drowned. They really had no idea where to look. And it just went on for days and days. And, and the, the parents were searching and the, the neighborhood was searching. And finally according to the clips that I had one of the younger brothers eventually told his parents I think John went down into the mine he'd been talking about going down in the mine and after that they um they went down and shouted and they heard the shouts and they reunited
0: so the 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 dad and and a bunch of the dad's uh, friends or, or family actually were part of this uh Search party, and they got permission to go down into yeah. the mine, which never would happen. Now, you imagine your own right. family like going out and forming a search party and going into a mine? Yeah, yeah, never gonna happen. Yeah,
1: they got a permit from Glenolden Coal Company to go in there and search for these two boys.
0: And little John had a great quote. So the reporter from the newspaper, <laughs> this cracks me up. The reporter from the newspaper asks him uh, if if he thought if if he thought he was going to die. In, in the mine. And he said, sure, anybody would after they've been in the mine as long as we were. We knew our only hope was that someone would come looking for us. Uh, I'm glad were alive.
1: <laughs> Pretty succinct for for you know a, a small kid.
0: Yeah, but the story doesn't end there. So um, so the the brother who according to our archives um, said he he eventually cracked uh, under under the pressure so to speak and and said you know and maybe maybe they're in the mind he didn't want to say anything because right. he was afraid he was going to get in trouble. But this is an example of a family that reaches out to you. So all these years later, the family reached out to you.
1: Right, right, and it was not. Um, I hear from readers all the time uh, with this far more than I did as as, as I was a reporter. Um, and usually they're just really positive interactions. But this family was, was a little um, upset because they said, no, no, the younger brother came forward immediately. And, you know, maybe he did. Um, you know, we're only as good as the clips. And obviously this happened in 34. I was born in 79. <laughs> so, you know, I have no independent knowledge of it. And I don't think anybody who did is, is still really around. But it's one of those things where you know, and, and you were talking about how, you know, you kind of had a, a little bit of a different timeline when your dad was in the Marywood fire with your sister. Um, you know, I think that these stories get passed down from generation to generation. Oh, yeah. Great granddad was lost in the mine for 75 hours. And who knows whether someone offhandedly said, oh, yeah, the, the younger brother may have known and didn't come forward. And we printed that as as gospel. Or maybe it was something that through the years, as the story was talked about and talked about, you know, a, a fact got changed, or, or someone tried to make themselves look better. You know, back in the '30s, and, and now this is the gospel. I don't know. I'd love to think that if it were me stuck in a mine, <laughs> that my younger brother would have immediately said, "Aaron, had been talking about going down in the mine." But who knows? Yeah, um, it's completely knows?
0: plausible that the little brother was afraid that he was going to get in trouble, that he was going to get his brother into more trouble than he right. was already in. Right? Because that's how it worked back then. I mean, you were you know you went missing for a day, your family was worried about you, but when they found you, you were in trouble. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> so it wasn't yeah. it wasn't that yeah. easy. I, it, that's just a great Scranton story. There's another one that you have here, and and this is just an absolute tragedy. Paratrooper Edward Kerrigan was killed in March of 1945 as U.S. troops crossed the Rhine into Germany. Two other Kerrigan boys, 37-year-old James and 38-year-old Gerard, both of Scranton, were working as the rest of the family was at a memorial service for their deceased brother, and then a second
1: tragedy struck the family. Right. So they were working because there was a coal mine strike, uh, I believe, and the family had a coal delivery company. So when they couldn't get coal in Scranton because of this strike or the work stoppage, the two brothers, um, the, the orders are piling up. And these two brothers said, you know, you know what, we're going to go down to the Mid Valley and we're going to see if we can get a delivery of coal so that we can fulfill these customer orders. So So the whole
0: um, family is at the Memorial Mass. Yes. And the two brothers are trying to keep the family business going by doing the coal deliveries themselves.
1: Right. Well, they were just trying to find, I think they probably got coal delivery in Scranton, that really wasn't happening because there was a work stoppage. So they were like, you know, we need to fill these orders, so we're going to go. And I think it was Blakely. You know, it was, it was a Winton, which is part of what Jessup is now. Okay. So they drive to Winton and they... They,
0: they don't even get to where they're going. They, they, they get, get very close. close. Yeah. They get
1: very close. So they're crossing the train tracks and their car was just creamed by a New York, Ontario, and Western Railroad freight train. Just... Um, It sent the truck careening into a switch stand at the railroad crossing, ripping off the truck's door and hurling their bodies onto the track. The truck was dragged 200 feet by the train. Wow. Um, And James Kerrigan killed instantly. And Gerard was actually taken to Mid Valley Hospital and and he died there.
0: So the whole family's at Holy Cross (laughs) Church in North Scranton. And they don't know this is even happening. No. I mean, they're mourning the loss of another brother. And the two brothers get killed during the memorial service Mm -hmm. for the brother that was in Germany during World War II. So here's another one where you hear from the family.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'd written this story just randomly. I mean, it wasn't tied to an anniversary. It wasn't tied to any sort of, you know, we just had found this and we're like, man, what a sad story. So the weekend it runs, um, I get an email from um, the great-granddaughter of uh, James Kerrigan. No, I'm sorry. The great granddaughter of one of the, the dads, her dad had died um, just that a couple of weeks before they would had just had the funeral. And this was mentioned during the eulogy. So then she she opens the paper a couple of days later and hears this story about the family and her dad actually, she said, uh, my dad at the ripe old age of 16 gave up many dreams to help raise his five siblings after his dad and uncle died that morning. So this was something that, you know, affected not just these two men, but, you know, their their children as well, who who kind of had to step up and, and be the, the men of the family. Um, she was really surprised to see it because, again, it, it you know, it would be different if it was an anniversary or something. And this happens a lot. We can't always tie it to an anniversary. There's just there's not that many things. So sometimes we just will pick something randomly that we came across or someone told us about. So she was, you know, really kind of astonished to read this, but also to be able to read, you know, the full story instead of just, you know, what had been passed down from.
0: So the better part of 70 years pass. Right. You happen to pull this thing out of nowhere because it's it's an amazing and yet tragic story. And it just happens to run in our paper yeah. about a week after one of the other brothers uh, mm-hmm.
1: passed away, passed away. Wow.
0: Yikes! Well, we're going to end this on a on a more upbeat note because uh, these we you know we're talking about you know fires and and two uh, tragedies related to <laughs> coaling uh, coal industry uh, here in Northeast PA uh, by the way. But this article was titled "A Christmas Wish Come True" and it's about nine year old Ronnie Hill, who was a Scranton boy with muscular dystrophy. And in 1947, Ronnie's grandmother wrote a letter to the Scranton Times and and she explained that they had a little boy um, who had progressive muscular dystrophy disease and that um, Christmas had become tough because I guess they used to take him out and and Mm -hmm. it was really hard for them to do that now. So tell us a little bit about Ronnie's background and and what happened after his, his Graham wrote the letter.
1: Well, you know, You have to start thinking, you know, in 47, how they treated, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is kind of what this boy had and how much progress we've made now. But so she she just had this really it was a real tearjerker of a story. It's kind of like Scranton's own um, Christmas story. Um, You know, it's it's a wonderful life from from Scranton. So um, she wrote that uh, that that, uh, the last year and a half, the disease had progressed so rapidly that he is now about helpless. Until this year, we've been able to carry him into the stores to talk to Santa Claus. This year, he is too weak and helpless to handle the Christmas crowds. Would Santa please call him up and talk to him a little? He will find him a very bright, patient boy, and it would certainly be the thrill of his life. So we print this letter, and the whole town uh, responds. And it's really very, very similar to what I find in Scranton now. You know, if a neighbor has a fire, if a neighbor has cancer, everyone gets together and helps. And so this was kind of that, but like writ large.
0: It's an amazing community. Like we're kind of known for that. Like right. People just really step yes. up here. But this is before social media. This is, right. you know, as you put it, um, ink on paper. And this thing appears in the paper and boom.
1: Yep. Yep. So so the Times decided a phone call to, from Santa is, is not enough for Ronnie Hill. And so they kind of, um, they and a whole bunch of downtown businesses organized this kind of like day out for Ronnie. So it actually starts at uh, the Globe. Oh, well, no, it actually starts um, with a, uh, a West Granton resident who operated an ambulance service. So he agreed to um, bring his ambulance to, to chauffeur Ronnie around. So he had his very own kind of chariot. And the first, so they, they arrive on Putnam Street where Ronnie lives and they take him to the Globe store. He meets Santa. And then apparently this was, like, completely overwhelming for him. Uh, and then screwing up his magnificent courage, he looked at the whiskered gentleman and spilled it out, <laughs> uh, which is such a great way. So this was printed in uh, 1947, and it's such a, a great time for, for the, the flowery, purple journalism. Ronnie got uh, Ronnie asked for a tractor, a little car, and toys for his brothers and sisters. So from the Globe store, he went to Scranton Dry Goods. Right across and he, the street. Right across the street. And he boarded a, a fire truck in Toyland and they pulled him all around this, this <laughs> store. Exactly. Um, he received a, a shiny red racer at Household Outfitting Co.'s Toyland, which was one of the big department stores downtown. It basically, you know, filled this ambulance full of toys for him. And um, then he went to City Hall and he met the mayor. And he told the mayor, you have some swell (laughs) cops. You have some swell cops. I mean, just what a personality um, this kid was. He met um, the president of the the Scranton Red Sox baseball team. Um, You know, he really, you know, had this great day. And it was actually one of his last great days. Um, he, He died when he was just 14. Right. Which is so sad.
0: He's got a great quote, though. He he gets home from this amazing day out, which, by the way, I guess you had mentioned this to me earlier. This is before there was any kind of make a wish or anything. Right. So this is like Scranton stepping up right. and doing make a wish, yeah. Scranton style. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets home and he's got all the gifts and he's seen the mayor and he's been on the ambulance and the fire truck and he's been to all the toy stores and, and he comes home and his mom asks him uh, how it was. And, he, and his reply is, gosh, mom, I had a swell time. <laughs>
1: I mean, what a great, what a great kid and what a great heartwarming story.
0: But this one doesn't end there either, does it?
1: No, no. So months go by. And I mean, I write a column every week. So, I mean, unless you catch me like within a month, uh, you know, I'm not going to remember a lot of the details. So months and months later, I get a call from the front desk that someone had someone was coming. Someone was in the lobby to see me. And that always fills reporters and editors with a little bit of trepidation because, you know, you never know who it's going to be. Is someone going to yell at you? Is someone going to serve you? Yeah, It's yeah. almost never
0: a good no. phone call. Someone's in the lobby waiting for you. Right. And, you know, you know and, and the women at the front desk are hiding under the desk.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So I, I kind of was like, well, there's no way out of it. They asked for me specifically. So I went down and it was actually one of Ronnie's sisters and she's weeping. Wow. Um, This is months and months later. This was like this spring. So this we ran this actually around Christmas. So the following spring, she she comes down and she says, Oh, I've been meaning to come down for months. Um, You know, we read this story about my brother. And she was just so touched and so moved. And of course, I didn't know all of the little details. I'm like, yeah, I think I did remember. So I'm, you know, comforting her and, and she's thanking me. And I'm saying, Oh, it was my pleasure. And then I run right upstairs and, and look it up and I'm like, oh, I really wish I had known that because I would have liked to ask her some questions about growing up with, with you know, a brother that had muscular dystrophy and, you know, what that was like and, and you know, um, why he died. and But I, I didn't really know all of the details until I went up and kind of re- refreshed my memory. But it was just so nice to have someone not just, you know, send me an email, write me a letter, but to stop by. And really see kind of the impact that something like this had on a family who probably had all but forgotten, um, you know, his big day out.
0: Yeah, 1947. And, you know, again, the you know, the better part of 70 years later. They see the story and they're thinking, you know, hey, this is. This is Ronnie, you know, we haven't thought about Ronnie since he was, well, I mean, they thought about Ronnie, but, you know, Ronnie hasn't been with us since he was in 1952 when he was 14 years old. And, you know, other than, you know, the family talking about it, the community's not talking about it. Ronnie, you know, essentially had his big day out for the most part. That was the last time, you know, uh, you know, the, the community had any real involvement with Ronnie until you write this column 70 years later. Right. And family sees it and bam.
1: And I would have loved to see what she remembered from that or was she even around as she was she was not an elderly woman, I didn't think. So um, I really wish I had known a little bit more uh, if she'd made an appointment you know, so that I could have done the research. Uh, I, I, I regret that uh, deeply, but she was very moved and I'm glad that I was able to give her and her family that memory of, of someone who passed away much too young.
0: It's a cool part of the job, and and it's a perk that most of us don't get. So
1: right, yeah, local history column. It's it's pretty rare. Um, I, I've, you know, I've this is my third paper, and we never did it at either of the other two papers. But it's not unheard of here because Ed Garrity, uh, who was an editor here, he used to write a column called My Town, and he did. A lot of looking back at the local history, I actually use many of his columns to to write my own uh, as a jumping off point because they're such great summaries. So this is something that, that we have had you know, a history, no pun intended, of doing, um, and I'm so glad to be a part of it because I'm not from here. So I don't really know a lot of our local history, even the stuff that people kind of grew up knowing, you know, the coal strikes and the... Um, you know, the electric why we why we're called the electric city, the Knox Mine disaster, you know, even, you know, them blowing up part of Lackawanna Avenue to make Steamtown Mall. I didn't live through that. I don't know those. So every time I open up a folder I'm learning something new about this community that I've lived in for almost 16 years. It'll be 16 years, January 3rd.
0: Well, you don't take it for granted because you're not from here. So right. it's all new to you and it's all interesting. And right. all the stuff that, you know, the the old timers like me, who have been here forever. You know, we're like, oh, yeah, we're used to that. They blew up the mall, whatever, right. you know. Uh, but it's you read it for the first time and right. you're interested in it. When we put this stuff out, our readers love this. Yes.
1: They love this yes.
0: column.
1: All of my neighbors know me as, you know, oh, sure. It's the, the local history column. And um, occasionally I'd be stopped, you know, out and about, oh, do you write the, it's, it's, I feel almost like Chris Kelly sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, people really do love, I think, reading about, you know, these little moments in history that we, you know, find just stumbling upon or someone tells us about.
0: Our hook for you is going to be, and the story doesn't end there, does it? And then you're (laughs) going to pick it up for us. Many years later, Aaron Nisley's local history column runs every Sunday in the Sunday Times, and our readers absolutely love these stories uh, that have, for the most part, long been forgotten. Aaron, will you come back next year and share a few more of these gems? Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you,
1: Aaron. Thanks.